Welcome back to NC Realtors Redefine, the NC Realtors podcast. On this episode, from our Mobile Monday series on Facebook, NC Realtors legal counsel Will Martin discusses the 2021 forms changes. But first... Do you have feedback on a story or topic that you'd like to hear covered on this podcast? Then give NC Realtors Redefine a call at 336-550-4437. When leaving your voicemail, be sure to tell us your name and where you're from. Your comments may be used on a future episode of NC Realtors Redefine. Hello, everybody. I'm Will Martin. I am North Carolina Realtors Legal Counsel, and I am here to talk about some recent forms changes to the NC Realtors residential forms, uh, covering the most significant changes today. Um, Actually, uh, in the next 20 minutes or so, just going to cover changes to two different forms. Uh, Happen to be two of the most widely used forms that we have, the offer to purchase and contract, Form 2T, and the exclusive right to sell listing agreement, Form 101. There are actually 31 residential forms that underwent some kind of change in the last year. So you can see that uh, just as COVID uh, pandemic didn't stop the real estate market, it didn't stop the forms committee either. Most of those changes are very technical in nature. Uh, for example, uh, you're familiar with the uh, notice uh, to buyer and notice to seller forms that can be used to unilaterally terminate a contract. They're forms 350-T, 351, 352, and 353-T, depending on whether it's improved property or vacant land. Um, we decided to change the names of those forms uh, because we think they're important forms and it seemed as though people might have some difficulty finding them when they look um, by word they might be looking for the word termination but the first word in the uh, names of all those forms was notice and so we've just changed the names of the forms Uh, so the first word will be termination hopefully that will uh, make it easier for members who are trying to terminate a contract to find those forms. So that's an example of the technical nature of most of the changes we've made to the forms. But there are some very substantive changes, uh, especially to the offer to purchase and contract, that I want to uh, go over with you today, at least the most important of those changes. Um, I did a detailed bullet point summary of all the changes that you can find on the NC Realtors website. If you log in, uh, sign in with your username and your password, and then you click on the click on the Q&A quick link at the top of the next page, then you would uh, click on the forms button and expand that, and then click on summary of forms changes, and you'll see a link to the uh, document I created and embedded in that document are links to the actual uh, forms themselves, marked up versions of them, so you can see exactly 
what changed in each of those 31 forms if you would like to. Um, I'm told that it will have a few minutes for me to answer questions at the end and so um, if you want to go ahead and submit questions as they come up <clears throat> I will try to address them uh, at the end of the presentation. If, if I'm unable to get to some of them um, please feel free to call us on the legal hotline or email us on the legal hotline. My partners, John Waite and Bill Gifford and I take calls every day uh, that NC Realtors is open. And the uh, email address is legalhotline at ncrealtors.org, legalhotline at ncrealtors.org. You can also call the uh, NC Realtors main line, 336-294-1415 and the call will be transferred to us. Uh, we're actually in Winston-Salem. We'll be happy to take your call and answer uh, any question about the changes to these forms. The offer to purchase in contract. I'm going to address changes to five different areas of the contract. The delay in settlement provision has a very significant change. Uh, special assessments section uh, has changed somewhat. We've done some additional things uh, regarding the due diligence fee that I want to cover. We've restructured the section in the buyer representations where the buyer represents how they intend to fund the transaction. And we've also created a new remedies section, uh, paragraph 23, toward the end of the contract. I'm going to hit on all five of those areas here in the next few minutes. The delay in settlement provision, um, you know, we created that provision way back in 2008, uh, three years before the due diligence contract even rolled out. And uh, it has brought a lot of clarity to the question of how long does a party have to wait if the other party is unable or unwilling to complete the transaction. As you know, well, it actually started out with a 30-day uh, delay period initially that was reduced to 14 days and now it's been reduced uh, a little further as, as I'm going to say here in just a minute or two that this provision was really designed to address situations where something unexpected would come up after the parties entered into their contract that caused a party to be unable to complete settlement by the agreed upon date. Um, this provision does not, I repeat, does not give a party an automatic right to a delay in settlement. It was not designed to be used for matters of convenience. It was not designed to give a buyer the ability to put an unrealistic settlement date in an offer to uh, make their offer look better uh, with the idea of pushing the actual settlement date out by up to 14 days. It was also not designed to give a green light to a bank that uh, wants to delay the processing of a loan because they know that in our contract there's a, up to a two-week delay in settlement. So in order to minimize the impact that a delay in settlement will have on a non-delaying party and to discourage excessive delays, the permitted delay in paragraph 12 has been reduced from 14 days to seven days. So we've cut it in half. In addition, in order to emphasize the fact that the delay in settlement provision is only intended to apply when absolutely necessary, the wording has been changed from the delaying party being 
quote unquote, unable to complete settlement by the settlement date to it is not possible for the delaying party to complete settlement on the settlement date. So I think we've strengthened the language just a little bit there to try to make it as clear as we possibly can that um, this provision is only supposed to be applicable if there really is a true need to delay the settlement. Okay, what have we done with the due diligence fee? Uh, the old version of the contract did not specify the form of payment of the due diligence fee, and we're beginning to see occasional disputes where uh, the buyer may want to pay the due diligence fee in a particular form and the seller doesn't want to, so we decided we ought to go ahead and give the parties the ability to agree up front, just as they do and have been able to do with the initial earnest money deposit for a long time uh, on the form of payment of the due diligence fee. So in the new version, the parties will need to agree on the form of payment, that's cash, personal check, official bank check, wire transfer, or electronic transfer. If the parties agree that the due diligence fee will be paid by electronically, the seller uh, agrees to cooperate to the extent necessary to enable the buyer to complete the uh, payment. Uh, and on the other hand, the buyer uh, will agree to bear any costs that may be associated with making that payment electronically. What else have we done with the due diligence fee? Uh, in paragraph 1D of the new version, it specifically states that the buyer's failure to deliver the due diligence fee timely uh, will and, and the seller terminates, the seller will be entitled to recover not only the due diligence fee, but any earnest money that was paid or payable and possibly attorney's fees. Uh, wording has also been added at the beginning of paragraph 4G, which is in the due diligence section where uh, it gives the buyer the right to terminate uh, for any reason or no reason prior to the end of the due diligence period. There's now a clause that makes it clear that the buyer's right to terminate during the due diligence period is predicated on the buyer actually having paid any agreed upon due diligence fee. Now, why have we made these changes? Uh, we've gotten quite a few reports about buyers entering into contracts calling for the payment of a due diligence fee and then changing their minds and refusing to pay it. So we want to try to discourage buyers from not paying a due diligence fee that they've agreed to pay. And so we hope that these changes will help in that regard. Special assessments. Um, the seller's representations regarding the existence of uh, confirmed and pending special assessments has been removed from the contract. The seller is still responsible for paying any assessments that are approved prior to settlement, whether they're payable in full then or possibly in the future. As long as the amount is known or can be reasonably estimated, the seller is still responsible for paying those approved assessments. That has not changed. Uh, and the buyer continues to be responsible for paying assessments that may be approved after settlement. Uh, that too has not changed. Uh, and we've added a new subparagraph on the uh, in the due diligence section of the contract uh, where we list the
the items that the buyer should consider investigating during the due diligence period, we've added uh, a new subparagraph regarding special assessments uh, to encourage the buyer to independently verify the existence of special assessments uh, that may be under consideration or that have been approved. Um, why have we made these changes? Well, for one thing, the seller's representations regarding the existence of confirmed and proposed special assessments, especially proposed special assessments, is of somewhat questionable value to begin with because the seller very oftentimes is unaware of the existence of those assessments. We also uh, saw lots of cases, uh, have for many years, where the blanks, uh, where the seller can list any confirmed or proposed special assessments have been uh, used for a purpose that they weren't intended for, uh, rather than the identification of uh, the special assessments that's being used to try to allocate responsibility for the payment of special assessments typically would say something like none known if any seller to pay. Uh, well, that just doesn't work very well when you're talking about proposed special assessments. And so we were trying to uh, address that problem by just eliminating the blank altogether. And as I said, I, I, we hope that this will also encourage buyers to independently verify the existence of special assessments that have been approved or that are under consideration. It doesn't come up often, but it can be a pretty big deal. And um, the buyer should perhaps not be relying so much on the seller's representations about the existence of those assessments. Um, a note to listing agents, just because we've added special assessments to the laundry list of due diligence items the buyer's recommended to investigate, you know, if you know or under the circumstances you should know about the existence of a special assessment uh, under consideration or approved, it's like very likely a material fact that you would need to disclose. So just because we've tried to emphasize uh, the buyer's uh, due diligence investigation doesn't mean that you're off the hook on disclosing material facts. Okay, let's move on to the buyer representation regarding the uh, manner in which they intend to fund the transaction. These changes are not so much substantive. I think it's mainly a reformatting of the section to try to make it a little easier to use. Um, the buyer will choose cash or uh, quote loan slash other funds initially and if the loan slash other funds checkbox is selected, the buyer will indicate all sources of funding, first mortgage loan, second mortgage loan, and other sources like uh, perhaps a, a loan or a gift from a, from a family member. The down payment assistance program checkbox has been eliminated as well as checkboxes for fixed slash adjustable rate, term of loan, and interest rate. We're trying to focus on the things that are really considered to be essential. You know, what should the seller know about uh, the manner in which the buyer is going to fund the transaction? So that's, that's what we're trying to focus on. Now, there's been a new sentence added at the, uh, at the end of the note, which is at the end of paragraph 5A, uh, that we've gotten a fair number of questions about. 
already. Uh, it states that if the buyer makes a material change in the way the buyer will fund the purchase and that change may affect the contract, that change must be disclosed as a material fact. A simple example of that would be um, if the buyer decides to switch loan products after they've entered into the contract and the switching uh, might cause the uh, buyer to be unable to complete settlement by the settlement date, I think that would be considered a material fact that the buyer agent would be expected to disclose to the seller or the listing agent. I want to say this isn't a new duty that's being put on buyer agents. You know, material facts include facts affecting the ability of your client to complete the transaction. So any fact that may affect the buyer's ability to complete the transaction within the time frames established in the contract uh, would, in my view, be considered a material fact. Uh, I want to also stress, though, that on the other hand, uh, the addition of this sentence does not mean that the buyer can't change the way they intend to fund the transaction after the contract has been entered into or that the seller has to consent to that change. Um, FHA and VA financing sort of uh, are a special case. Uh, the seller, in our view, isn't required to agree to amend the contract to add the FHA VA financing addendum to the contract, but uh, if it doesn't involve a change in the contract, We've long been of the view that the buyer can make that change without the seller's consent. But again, uh, we do feel as though there are situations where the buyer needs to uh, keep the seller abreast of any changes that might affect the way the contract works. Last section of the offer to purchase I want to cover is the creation of this new remedy section, paragraph 23. Uh, in the old version of the contract, the rights that a party has if the other parties in breach were located in some different sections of the contract. So we've tried to consolidate those provisions in the same place in this new remedy section. Um, in the, and, and so the, the wording pertaining to, well, what happens if the buyer's in breach of contract or what happens if the seller's in breach of contract really haven't changed fundamentally. They've just been pulled from some other places in the contract and put in this new paragraph 23. Uh, we had a couple of different attorney's fee provisions. We've kind of pulled them and we have revised the wording of the attorney fee provision to some extent. You'll see several references in that attorney's fee part of that paragraph to a statute, North Carolina General Statute 6-21.2. You know, why is that in there? Uh, we don't normally like to put statutory references in, in forms, but we felt as though it was necessary here. Uh, the reason is that in, uh, in North Carolina, there has to be a statutory basis for the award of attorney's fees, uh, at least in litigation involving a residential real estate transaction. And the contract has to specifically provide for the payment of attorney's fees. So that's why you see the reference there now, whether or not uh, that statute permits recovery of attorney's fees by one party or the other in a specific situation can actually be somewhat tricky to figure out. And so uh, the attorney's fee provision in paragraph 23 simply provides that attorney's fees will be recoverable to the extent permitted up uh, by the statute, uh, leaving it up ultimately to a judge to determine a party's entitlement to attorney's fees in a particular situation. What we hope is that uh, 
just the potential for an award of attorney's fees will encourage the parties to work out their differences rather than taking the matter to court. So that's all the comments I have about the offer to purchase. Let's move to the exclusive right to sell listing agreement for just a few moments. Uh, wanted to highlight changes in four paragraphs, uh, paragraphs 9, 10, 11, and 12. Paragraph 9, we've added a new warning. Uh, at the end of paragraph 9, warning sellers and listing agents about potential fair housing problems associated with the seller's consideration of uh, what a lot of people refer to as buyer love letters and advising the seller and the listing agent to discuss how any such letters will be handled. You know, we haven't tried to establish how they will be handled. We think that is best left up to an individual agent or a, a firm to decide as a matter of firm policy, how are we going to handle this situation? Um, but we hopefully the uh, warning will uh, encourage uh, discussion about it up front. Um, we've added something pretty similar in the buyer agency agreement uh, as well. Paragraph 10, the marketing paragraph has been reorganized in an effort to make it hopefully easier to understand and use. I don't consider any of these changes to be really substantive in nature, but uh, in the old version of paragraph 10, the, the default was that the marketing would begin on the effective date, which is the date the parties have both signed it, unless they were going to agree to a, a, a what we called a delayed marketing date. And so if there was going to be a delayed marketing date, you had to fill in the blank about when that date was going to be, a date after the effective date. So we've kind of reformatted it now so that in the new version, we've eliminated that delayed marketing date blank. And instead, the parties will establish in all cases when marketing will begin. So you're going to need to fill in that blank in all cases, and it could be on the effective date or it could be uh, at a date later. Uh, once you've done that, then uh, the seller and the listing firm are going to be required to select either public marketing or office exclusive. It's one or the other. Uh, if public marketing is selected, then you check the applicable marketing options. Those haven't really changed. You're familiar with those. Uh, if coming soon marketing is selected, there is another date blank you need to fill in, and that's the date that the status of the listing will be changed from coming soon to active. Uh, we have added a new sentence in the office exclusive subparagraph. If that's selected to make it clearer that uh, public marketing is prohibited if the office exclusive option is selected, and that if public marketing will take place at a later date, it will be necessary to amend the listing agreement. So you'd start out, check the exclusive uh, office exclusive option. If you decide later on that's not working out, if you want to change to public marketing, the buyer, the seller would check the public marketing blank. You would initial and date the changes and you would select the, the options uh, that you were going to use in the, in the public marketing campaign. Paragraph 11, in the old version of Form 101, there was an assumption that the listing firm would act as the escrow agent. Of course, given the increasing number of firms that don't even maintain trust accounts and the increasing use of closing attorneys holding earnest money deposits, paragraph 11 has been changed to reflect uh, current reality. 
In the new version, the listing agent will need to check the appropriate box to indicate whether the firm, agent's firm, maintains a trust account, uh, and the wording has been changed to clarify that the escrow agent will be identified in the sales contract. Uh, paragraph 12, mainly formatting changes. Uh, there are 14 representations that the seller's making in paragraph 12, and we've kind of changed the order of those representations. We've, we're grouping together the eight representations that the seller is making to the best of seller's knowledge. There are eight of those, and then there are six representations that are not limited by best knowledge standard, and so we've kind of grouped those together. Now, we have added some new wording in uh, what will be subparagraph N that will require the seller to indicate whether any fuel tanks are in use, and if not, whether the tank has been closed and the manner used to close the tank. And some of the wording in the owner's association subparagraph has been eliminated as unnecessary or moved to the seller's duties paragraph. Uh, that's really all the time that I have uh, devoted to uh, formal remarks. Uh, if I've got other questions I didn't answer, I'll try to answer those uh, somehow. Or if uh, you have other questions, like I said before, don't hesitate to call or email the legal hotline, uh, legal hotline at ncrealtors.org, or you can call at 336-294-1415. Thank you all for your time today. I hope this has been helpful and uh, everybody take care. Have a good day. For the rest of this presentation and to get exclusive NC Realtors content, join the NC Realtors Mobile Mondays group on Facebook. Be sure to catch up on every episode of NC Realtors Redefined by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud.